Women often wear many hats in life. Mother, daughter, wife, ex-wife, caregiver, mom taxi, chief cook and bottle washer. In most cases, we're doing all this while holding down a full-time job or even running our own companies. It's often high pressure and most always involves stress. Welcome to Sprinting to Success, a podcast dedicated to women in high-stress professions where we'll discuss how to manage the stress at work and at home so you can feel happier, healthier, and more successful. And now, here's your host, Esme Lawrence. My name is Esme Lawrence, and you are listening to Sprinting to Success podcast. Today on the show, I'm talking with Allison Shuttleworth. Allison is a registered nurse with a master's degree. She also has 25 years of experience and board certification in emergency nursing. Allison specializes in nursing education, staff onboarding, and professional development. She's passionate about nurse advocacy and brings a fresh, sassy, and experienced voice to issues that affect nurses. Allison authors the Crispy Code blog, a wickedly funny publication dedicated to evidence-based solutions to burnout, told as only a veteran ER nurse can. She is also the CEO of her company, Expedition Ed. Allison, welcome, and thank you again so much for agreeing to be on my podcast. Thank you so much, Asmia. This is a real treat. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. So on your, your code, uh, Crispy blog, you, sh- you shared lots of stories about burnout. What exactly is burnout, Allison? Burnout is a compilation of symptoms, um, and it's, they're derived from chronic, unrelenting, usually occupational stress, but it, uh, personal stressors certainly have some overlap there and can contribute. The symptoms uh, in, are not dissimilar from depression. It's extreme physical and emotional fatigue. Uh, there are some physical symptoms that can be associated with burnout. Uh, aches and pains in particular are heightened with burnout syndrome. A lack of professional efficacy is one of the elements that defines burnout. And uh, just generally not feeling engaged or passionate about your work anymore. Wow. And so some of the, that's some of the symptoms that occurs. And so that this would um, happen to nurses who are feeling burnt out on the job. Yes. All right. So share with us your journey from starting as an emergency nurse to a nurse that is, exper- that is experiencing burnout. So show, show, tell me the journey where when you're on the floor, you weren't burnt out. And then, and then the journey and what happened when you were burnt out. So burnout's in, an interesting phenomenon. It's uh, I like to think of it in terms of a scale, because if you're burned out once, you're, there's a greater likelihood that you'll experience the symptoms of burnout syndrome again and again. And it's because of a type of behavior that we engage in as, excuse me, as nurses uh, that causes us to, to do that. And I can get into that here in a little bit. Okay. Um, but I've, I've experienced burnout multiple times in my, in my career. And it's because I tend to be a very highly engaged um, professional and about one in one in 20 uh, highly engaged professionals experience burnout. The first time I remember experiencing it was during a time where I was going through graduate school and I was working pretty much full-time. I was doing a Baylor program and doing grad school full-time. So I was committed, uh, very committed to two big aspects of my life. And I had, I had to work because I had to make money. And so work, 
I was equating work more with chasing money and not really chasing dreams. And I was physically exhausted because, you know, class schedule was Monday through Friday, and then I'd work Saturday and Sunday, 12-hour shifts. Wow, that's pretty hectic. It was. And that sort of, that burnout sort of followed me into my first NP job, which was in a small rural emergency room in North Carolina, where occupational stress is sort of the foundation of burnout. Uh, I've been reading and writing quite a lot about that this summer. And one of the things that occupational stress is, is that it's a mismatch between your capabilities and your resources and what's expected of you on the job. And my first nurse practitioner job in the small ER, I wasn't afforded any resources really. In fact, they they had taken away an FTE from the regular nursing staff to be able to make my position. And so I didn't have, I didn't have the luxury of even having a, a, a dedicated role as a nurse practitioner. The nurses expected me to do the regular staff nurse stuff, but right down to triage and drawing my own blood. And the wow. physicians to dictate and do history and physicals and read my own x-rays and interpret my lab work and write prescriptions. And, you know, that's a a very clear example of how your capabilities are not well matched with your resources. And so storm, if you will, for burnout. And my remedy for that was to get out of that situation. (laughs) And and how did you do that? (laughs) Um, I quit my job. (laughs) When you had, they expected you to do all this. So what were your symptoms of burnout? How did you know that you were experiencing burnout? What was going on in your body? What was happening? Well, first off, I quit. I started neglecting myself. So mm-hmm. I, priorities became a sort of, they took a back seat to the priorities of my work because my work was, I was overly engaged because I had to be. Right. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't putting, I went from, you know, makeup and hair and, and caring how my appearance looked to no makeup not packing my lunch, eating lunch out of the machine. I, I joke and say that Funyuns are a vegetable because it, <laughs> was, <laughs> it really was for me during that time. Mm-hmm. And I was having you know emotional outbursts at home because I couldn't at work. So I'd go home and just the slightest thing, a broken dinner date or some a, a dish falling on the floor would just make me burst into tears, which is not normal. Wow. Yeah. To overreact to minor infractions like that. Um, and then I was also having some back pain at the time and just general aches and pains, just not feeling good because I was exhausted. Right. You know, you need to take care of yourself and, um, and you didn't. And so, uh, so then you end up with burnout. You're talking about when I went on your blog and I love your blog and I, and I recommend that everybody goes and, and read, um, Allison's blog. And so in, on the blog, you were talking about, um, stress response in relation to, to the gut. Can you tell us more about that? Oh, yeah. I'm really fascinated by that. So uh, there's, there's really two inter, interrelated concepts here. The stress response when your sympathetic nervous system kicks into overdrive and that reptilian brain kicks in and the amygdala and you start kicking out, you know, cortisol and adrenaline and norepi and and dopamine believe it or not those all of those hormones sort of cause a diversion of blood away from the gut and toward your skeletal muscle so that you can fight flight or freeze in response to the threat and so the the first 
portion of this is when that happens, your gut essentially stops. It, it, your digestion halts. So some people experience nausea or indigestion. Um, acid sits in the stomach for a prolonged period of time. So you can end up having gastric ulcers. So a lot of reflux problems are associated with uh, elevated levels of stress, peptic ulcers and uh, gastroparesis and whatnot. Well, this, but the second portion of that is what I'm really obsessed with right now. I'm fascinated by what's called the microbiome. And the microbiome is a microbial organ, if you will. Some scientists view it as an organ because it's such an extensive system throughout the human form. Uh, microbes make up 99% of the DNA in our bodies. Like That is wow. astounding. We're really only 1% human. I'm 1% Allison's DNA. Wow. <laughs> The rest is all, it, it's all microbial, it's protozoal, it's bacterial, it's viral, fungal. And those, there's a very delicate balance that occurs among all of the microbia, that my, microbiotica that live on our body and in our gut in particular. And let's talk about the gut one for now because it's really fascinating. So when, as we're developing as fetuses, the, the neural tube and the uh, enteral tube and they call it the enteric nervous system are co-developing. They arise from the same fetal tissue, same embryonic tissue. And so the gut and the, and the brain are intrinsically linked and they're linked as adults by the what's called the vagus nerve. It's the wandering nerve. It goes from your brain all the way down to your colon. It may even go beyond that. I, I, I know it goes and innervates all major organs from your spleen and your heart. Wow, fascinating. And to your gut. And microbes are known to use that as a superhighway to transmit information to your brain. And it's fascinating in that some microbes don't have our best interest in mind. And I like to call them zombie microbes because <laughs> they sort of hijack our brains through this right. vagus. But they tell us what to crave and what to eat based on what will help them thrive and proliferate. But when they thrive and proliferate, it throws off the balance and that can cause an imbalance in neurotransmitters, like important neurotransmitters like serotonin right. and dopamine, which are essential for our, our mental well-being, our mental health. And so when our, when our microbiome, when those zombie microbes take over the, and they tell our brain to eat processed foods and, and things that are, that are highly, highly processed and high, highly inflammatory like sugars and starches and simple starches and whatnot, they, they do it at the expense of other microbes that are producing really important neurotransmitters. And so there's a reduction in the amount of serotonin and dopamine and norepi that are produced, the feel-good hormones that we need to be able to feel mentally balanced and healthy and upbeat. And so the result is anxiety and depression. And so there's an of these psychiatric symptoms when your microbiome is out of whack. Wow, that is amazing. So just those gut bound bacteria can do all that damage? Yes. And the thing is, we need them because they also do some good things for us. I mean, we, we can't survive without our microbiome. That's why a lot of scientists refer to it as an organ. We need it because a lot of those microorganisms produce things like vitamin K, for example, for good clotting. That's why when babies they, they don't have E. coli in their guts. And so we have to give them a vitamin K injection so that they, God forbid, if something happens and they start to bleed, that they can produce their clotting factors until, you know, mama's breast milk and stuff kicks in and they get a little bit of E. coli in their gut where it can produce it, you know, for them. We have to give exogenous vitamin K to them. Right. So yeah, there's micro, the, the microbes produce things that we need too. The key here is balance. You don't want to kill off any of the microbes. You just want to create an environment of checks and balances, kind of like our government. We need those checks and balances so one doesn't right. become 
powerful and become a dictator in your gut. How do you maintain those balances in your gut? Uh, well, for one, it really, most people should try to avoid tap water. Tap water has a lot of chlorine and fluoride, among other chemicals in it, that are that are good for us. I mean, they keep us from getting dysentery. You know, they kill protozoa and bacteria and things in our water that could make us sick. But they also kill the good bacteria in our gut. And one way to avoid tap water is to, and I don't have any stock in any of this stuff. I don't even know the name brands, but to either <laughs> bottled water or to get like a reverse osmosis water distillation kit or machine that can take out those chemicals that can harm your beneficial microbes in your gut. So that's one way to do it. Being in Mexico, we have treated water down here in some places, but in other places it's not treated. So you don't really drink the tap water anyway. But I I also choose to uh, brew my own kombucha, which is a ferment probiotic drink that's very, very old. Uh, It's been around for thousands of years. And it sort of restores that balance in your gut. And I've, I've seen firsthand the benefits of kombucha. I, I wasn't a fan at first because when you look at it, if you buy it in the store and you look at it, it really looks like swamp water or something that oh came out of a bag. <laughs> it looks this <laughs> And But what you're seeing there, that sediment, are the, is, it's the SCOBY, the, the symbiotic culture of beneficial yeast and bacteria. And it, that's necessary. So even though it looks kind of scary, it's not scary. It's not going to make you sick. It's really good stuff. But if you shy away from that, other, you can get other good stuff to get to replace the, the microbia, microbiotica in your gut, like yogurt or kefir. Pickles are a great way to do it. Kimchi, any sort of naturally fermented foods. Right. Well, I, I love yogurt. So that's, that is incredible. That's, I love that. So I'm going to ask you about the occupational injuries. Now, what kind of occupational injuries did you experience as an, as an emergency nurse? Oh my gosh. The, the biggest one was when I hurt my back. And to be honest with you, I can't pinpoint an exact incident what that, that injured my back. So it's cumulative stress in our lumbar area, typically in nurses. The number one, it's the number one injury in nurses, of course, back injuries. They're micro tears that occur over time. And I had a very profound, very serious back injury that caused me to, I had 90% spinal intrusion from a protruding disc at L4, L5. And yeah, it was compressing my spinal cord about 90%. And I was, I was having some incontinence. And of course, being a nurse, I rationalized it away. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm just holding my pee too long because I have to start this IV. But no, no, it was because my spinal cord was being compressed and they, they sort of rushed me into emergency surgery. And because I had waited so long, I ended up having a, a host of complications. I had to have four surgeries in a five-month period. I had a significant uh, tear in my dura and ended up with bacterial meningitis, which led me to be septic. And I the doctor gave me a less than, less than 50% chance of surviving. Wow. That's amazing, Allison. Like, I'm a, ER nurses are hard to kill, as me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is so true. You're like the, the gut bacteria. Bacteria is fighting for me, girl. Yeah, <laughs> that is amazing. And uh, so, of course, you made a full recovery, and uh, you know, I'm grateful for that because you're here. Me so, too. Yes, and so, the, and like you said, it's uh, it's you know, when I read about the information regarding um, you know, some of the some of the violence that happens in ER. So, so nurses working in the, in the emergency department, um, they experience violence. So um, uh, where, where do they sometimes, and of course they sometimes are abused, they're threatened or they're assaulted at work. So what kind of occupational violence did you experience or witnessed when you worked oh as, as an ER nurse? 
But first of all, the statistic is one in four nurses in the uh, in the emergency room experience violence. But I would say it's probably if you're counting threats and verbal violence, it would be more. It would approach more like ninety percent, maybe even higher. Wow, it's, it's a daily it's a daily thing, unfortunately. And I worked in a very an inner city emergency department for fifteen years uh, with uh, a lot of dual diagnosis, hardcore methamphetamine and alcohol, and um, uh, other drugs of abuse. And I've had all kinds of stuff happen to me. I have a scar on my right forearm that's perfectly shaped like somebody's teeth where mm-hmm. I got a bit me and very hard and it was terrible. I, I ended up on a course of antibiotics. It was bad. So that was one way, you know, when I was, uh, I went through in vitro fertilization with my husband. And when I was, I had, the, they uh, inseminated me with four embryos at the time because I was older and they were kind of hoping that one of them would attach. Right. And I got, during that time, I got kicked in the abdomen by a patient. Wow. I don't, I, I doubt if that contributed to my lack of success with in vitro, but, you know, just, just the psychological impact of it. And, you know, in addition to the physical discomfort that I felt and I, you know, I've had patients, I had a patient who had a colostomy bag and he was angry and he was flicking poo at me from his oh. colostomy bag. <laughs> You can laugh at it now, but I'm sure at the time it wasn't funny. It wasn't funny, but I mean, I, I'm remembering the, the picture of it and, you know, I'm just like, really, man, I'm trying to help you here and you're going to flick poo at me. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think it really, like he had nothing else to use as a weapon. He was a double amputee. And so, yeah, I mean, all he had were his arms. And so here he is taking his philosophy bag off and just like flicking it at me. It was disgusting. Right. And of course, of course, you <laughs> see people at their worst in, you know, in the emergency department, they're yeah. at their worst. And some of these people can be very nice people, but they're at their worst, you know, dealing yeah. with their, their stress. And so I want to ask you on your blog, you talked about um, the subtle sources of stress in the emergency department. What is that? Well, so many things. The, the things I focused in on on the blog are the most overt, but although they still are subtle and most people don't realize that they're causing sympathetic nervous system activation. And for example, noise levels, noise levels over 70 decibels are known to stimulate the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight, amygdala, the reptilian brain, and all those, you know, cortisol and and adrenaline and stress hormones. And an average uh, patient room is at over 80 decibels. So you can imagine what the emergency like especially like on a full moon or you know during a festival or uh, during a natural disaster i mean our noise levels get well above the the established threshold for triggering the the sympathetic nervous system and then odors noxi- noxious odors can also uh, have been shown clinically to cause uh, sympathetic nervous system arousal and then the other thing which i find really really interesting oh wait let me let, let me go back here again to the uh, noxious stimulus it took me a long time to understand about the the smells and it, it occurred to me one day i was so angry at work and i had no idea why i was angry like i'm like why am i angry i don't understand where this is coming from and i realized it's because i was having to smell poop like for mm-hmm. hours and it was just triggering me. Like I shouldn't have to smell, smell poop for four or five hours at a time. First of all, I feel like that's the smell of poor nursing care. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Somebody's laying in poop for that long. So I think that there was that association, but I also just think that those not, well, I don't just think it's been, it's been established in the literature that noxious odors can trigger your, trigger your fight or flight. So that, that there's a sound basis for that in science. It wasn't me just being super crazy. <laughs> and I was so relieved when I found that out. I'm like, good, I'm not crazy. 
I might be crazy, but I'm not crazy like that. <laughs> right. So yeah. So you you you're smelling this odor for for four hours, and and so so um, are you like you and all the other nurses, and so you guys gonna be at odds at odds at each other because um because yeah. you're smelling it and you're angry. Yes. Well, and what's interesting is humans have the ability, and it's called uh, uh, chemosensors. We produce uh, hormones or pheromones in response to threats. And from an anthropological standpoint, it's believed to be a way, it's chemo signaling, uh, and it's believed to be a way for one member of the herd, for lack of a better term, to use nonverbal communication to signal the rest of the herd of danger. And I like to think of this, if you think of like a herd of deer, one deer maybe smells the hunter, but they all flee. And it's chemo chemo signaling. And it's it's really very interesting to me because it, it sort of justifies the it, it it sort of bolsters the theory that stress is contagious. There's a, a contagious sort of element to our stress because without us even realizing it, we're releasing these hormones to our coworkers and to our patients uh, that that is letting on, letting them know that we're stressed, even if we're not registering it on a conscious level ourselves. Our amygdala independently, it works independently of our consciousness. And in fact, that's why when, let's say you're about to be, you know, there's, there's a bus coming at you and you quickly jump out of the way before you even realize what's going on. That's the mechanism at work there. It's before you're able to establish rational thought around what's happening, your body springs into action. And the same thing is happening with those chemo, those chemical sensors that we're letting out for for alerting the herd. And so you can imagine the implications of that, or at least one of the things that I'm fascinated by are the implications that that may have as it relates to violence and increasing levels of violence in the ER. Because here you have a bunch of an entire staff of stressed out nurses, then we're suppressing it, right? We have to put on our game face and we're probably dissociating ourselves from it so that we can function. In fact, we are definitely doing that. And our patients are are picking up on it though. They're picking Mm -hmm. up. And even when stress is not related to outright violence or aggression, it lowers the threshold for attack. And that, again, this is all evidence-based stuff. This isn't me being crazy and just sort of making stuff up as I go along. I spent my entire summer researching this. I'm kind of, I think I might be the only person I know that sails away and moves to Mexico so that we can, so that I can research for six hours a day. But awesome. I, I love it. I think it's, it's awesome because I mean, you can always share, you know, what you've learned with us. So I think it's great. So keep going, Allison. <laughs> It's really fascinating stuff, but if you think about it, if it's if stress reduces the threshold for attack and stress is contagious, and it, logically, our stress pheromones are triggering our patients potentially to attack us, and they are they're attacking us at a at an unbelievable alarming rate. That is that is that is amazing how you know just the environment alone create that stress. So then, so what can be done? Like, um, you know, uh, is there anything that, that the administrators or, or as a nurse, as you yourself, is there anything that can be done about that? Well, yes. First of all, we need more research into it and to, to really establish that connection because I'm, I'm putting out there, you know, if this, then that scenarios. But having, it's not well documented in the literature, the link between occupational stress, burnout, and violence. And I actually have uh, approached ENA. They've got some funds available for research grants. And I think probably in my near future, I'm going to see if I can write a grant proposal and collect my own data about it because I'm very interested in this 
phenomenon that's happening because it's not just the patients attacking us, it's us attacking one another. Right. Oh, definitely. Horizontal violence, is that, isn't that what they call that? Yes, horizontal violence and bullying, and but also external violence, you know, from our patients and family members and whatnot. And until we get a grip on this, and I think this this it, it can be extrapolated to the greater to greater society because what we're seeing is people are more and more stressed out. We have these little sadistic devices called smartphones that we we carry with us everywhere. We're always checking the news. We're we're updating our status. We're checking social media. We're checking our bank accounts. We're watching the markets fluctuate. We're watching violence in other parts of the country, and so our anxiety anxiety is increasing exponentially with with technology with use and of technology so it helps us but it also can be very harmful if we're not careful of it and then we're also seeing increased rates of violence you know societal violence right with gun issues and attacks bullying in schools and just more and more violence in society as a whole. And I do think that it's related to these increased levels of stress that humans are experiencing and, and, you know, we're depersonalizing it. We're, 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 you know, dissociating from it and not acknowledging that, yes, I'm stressed. And in, in, in the America, in the U S we actually, when we're stressed, it means we're busy, right? It means, Oh, I'm stressed because I have so much to do. I must be a busy person. If I have a lot to do, if I'm just sort of loafing around, I'm not busy. I'm not very, I'm disposable. A lot of interrelated concepts here that, um, that need to be looked at, but, uh, from, from a standpoint of what needs to be done, one of the things that can be done from an administrative standpoint from in, in the hospital is the, the antidote to this is resources. Even when you're busy at work, if you know that you have the support of your administrators and if they make resources available, maybe they can't, you know, clone a nurse and get you an extra nurse in, but maybe they can get some volunteers in there to help stock the rooms or enlist the help of, say, an EMT or paramedic program to get extra hands in there to help with lifting or to help control that violent patient until security can get there or to help with some of the other tasks that don't require RN licensure. There's other ways to get creative about resource allocation that don't necessarily have to impact and perhaps being creative can improve the budget or the economic impact of what's happening with burnout. Right. So, so Allison, how do you manage your stress? <laughs> it's funny that you asked that because I'm pretty stressed out right now. <laughs> 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 this week has been crazy. I have sort of a lot on my plate, but one of the things I was, I was telling my husband just the other day, I'm like, you know, I write about this stuff all the time. And then I, I just get swept up in this spiral myself. And sometimes I don't realize that it's happening. So bringing myself back to the present moment makes a big difference because, you know, I, I, I realize like, wow, I'm really uncomfortable, but I don't know why I'm uncomfortable. And if I take a moment, I realize, oh, because I'm breathing kind of shallow and I've got bad posture right now, or um, maybe I haven't eaten in six hours because I'm busy, you know, doing this PowerPoint or researching or whatever, uh, or writing a blog. And I get really wrapped up in what I'm doing. Again, I tend to be over-engaged and sometimes at my own expense. So I do like to do yoga and I'm not this wild yoga person who's been be like a pretzel. I just do some basic poses that pretty much anybody can do. If you can walk, if you can work in your job, then you should be able to do most of these poses. And, and yoga is yoking the breath with movement. So that movement may just be standing in Tadasana, which is mountain pose, or just literally just standing there, but stacking your spine properly in alignment over 
your hips and with your feet firmly planted and taking a moment to take some deep breaths and trigger that parasympathetic parasympathetic nervous system that rest and digest that we need to bring our heart rate down. And there's some research that's shown actually that you can improve vagal tone by exercising uh, slow, deep, intentional breathing and that that increased vagal tone uh, can translate into better health and certainly better mental, but also better physical health. Right. And so the, t- the times um, that you were um, stressed at work, now how did that um, affect your personal life? Oh my gosh. So I would get home and I just, my husband would pick me up from work and he'd have the radio going. And I would have, the first thing I would do when I got in the car is turn off that radio. I didn't want any stimulus. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I just wanted silence because I was trying to process what had happened in the last 12 hours, you know, whether it was grief or anger or very, you know, a little bit of happiness, but not that much in the ER, you know, frustration and all these, these emotions. Unfortunately, my husband worked in the ER with me, so he understood what I was going through and I didn't have to do a lot of explaining or justifying why I didn't want to talk to him or why I didn't want to go out and socialize with our friends um, because I needed time to process what had happened during my day, especially during really bad shifts. And it just, it affected me in a lot of ways. I didn't want to exercise because I was so fatigued. And when you're holding in all that stress, your muscles are tense. And for, you know, you have muscle tension for 12 hours and I work 12 to 16 hour shifts. When wow. you have muscle tension for that long, it, it, you build up lactic acid and they're fatigued and they're sore. And even if you're not somebody who has chronic pain, you kind of live with chronic pain because you're like, gosh, my muscles and my shoulders are killing me because I've been sort of hunched up all day, bracing against this fight or flight response. And you don't think of it in those terms, but you're like, why am I so sore? I don't want to go to the gym or I don't want to run. I don't want to lift or do yoga because I'm just so sore. I just want to sleep. And so I slept a lot more when I was was stressed out and then I would it would be fitful sleep it wouldn't be great sleep you know you're ruminating the you're playing that the day back on on constant loop in your mind I could have said this better I could have done that better or what if I what if I made a mistake here and it cost this person their life or maybe I forgot to do something here and you're multitasking so much in that environment there's there's so many opportunities for making a mistake it's it's really unbelievable I'd be interested to see you know, if anybody's ever done a study on that, like the opportunities for, for making an error in just a single shift for one nurse is oh, yeah. sort of with all the interruptions and, and everything. Oh, for sure. And what I would like for, to know, Allison, is how did you go from burnout in the ER room? And how did you go from burnout to bliss? So I am so interested in, to hear that story. Well, uh, <laughs> Gosh, you know, it was it was years of this cycle. Like I would get burnout, I would change a job, or I would get burnout, I would withdraw from my job for a while, and then I would feel better. But then I would go. I wasn't treating the underlying behavior, right? Which is what that was what was predisposing me to burnout. Because some people are more at risk for burnout than others. And you know what I started. You know, I started researching this to understand, and it's because of engagement. Some people are able to really disengage when they leave work. They can disengage and and have a fulfilling life outside of work. for me, it was difficult. I started to identify myself in very strict terms. All of my identity was wrapped up in being a caregiver. You know, I was taking care of my patients while I was at work. And then when I was at home, I was fielding questions from friends or neighbors um, about their health questions. And 
then you have this sort of ownership, you know, oh, she's a nurse and she's always on. And then, so I took on that, I, the identity throughout all of my life and not just like leaving it at work when I left my shift. And so one day I realized like I was in a lot of pain. I, I went back to work after my back injury and I worked for about six more years without any limitations that I did really well after my final back surgery and after the meningitis and all, I healed up nicely. And I, I went right back at it. I went back to the same cycle of behavior. And I realized one day, I was like, wow, I'm having pain again in my back, in my hip, all the way down my leg. And it's frightening for me because I had that sort of, I guess you would call it a near-death experience. I really did. And I was like, what am I doing? What am I doing here? This has to stop. And I, I literally said in my head, stop. I remember when it happened too, I was walking down the hallway and I was limping because I was in so much pain. I was getting ready to clock out and I was just like, stop. And it was just a a very pivotal moment in my life. I went home that night and I told my husband, I said, I don't want to do this anymore. I know that if I quit my job, I'm going to lose my health insurance. And that's really scary for me, but I don't want, I don't want these golden handcuffs as it were, with you know, good paycheck and good benefits and good health insurance. I don't want it to keep me in a job that's killing me. And so we did. We sold the house and bought a boat. And we, I, I channeled my energy then from work into building this boat with my husband. It was already built, but you know, sort of re, refurnishing this boat, furbishing this boat. And I had something else to focus on. My identity shifted from just being a caretaker to being a wife and being somebody who can learn something new that is completely independent of being a caretaker. And that just the, the promise of having something else to focus on. I'll always be a nurse. It's in, it's in my DNA. I'll never be able to let that go. And I, and I don't want to, but what I was able to finally do was understand that I was behaving in a way that is, was very codependent. And that's another thing I've been reading a lot about over the past six months or so is why did I, why was I prone to this level of burnout again and again, you know, this cycle that I kept repeating. And it was because I was over identifying with my role as caregiver and I would self-sacrifice too much. I would skip my breaks because so-and-so needed help or, or, oh gosh, you know, there's not enough people to provide break relief. I'm not going to ask for a break, even though I really need a break because I'm working overtime. But, you know, Susie's not asking for a break. If I ask for a break, it just makes me look like I'm entitled and I'm not any more worthy than Susie of a break. And so then resentment would build because I would see other people go on their breaks and I started justifying it like, oh, well, maybe, maybe I just have a better work ethic than that person or, you know, I'm just more committed than that person is. And, but all the while resentment was building and and really I wasn't any of those things. It was that person had a more realistic sense of their boundaries, their personal boundaries. Like they needed a break. They asked for a break and they got it. Right. And I, I wasn't. I wasn't valuing myself enough to be able to allow myself to ask for what I needed. And when I realized that that's what was happening, first off, I realized that it was super cuckoo and <laughs> I did not want to be that nutty. Like that, that's not a, it's a sick way of looking at things. You know, when you don't value yourself enough to allow yourself to go to the bathroom because, oh, I have to start this IV it's not like it was a code situation. It was a normal course of the day. I'm going to hold my pee because I need to go start an IV and I don't want, I want to be the, you know, be 
fast at getting my workups done because what if what if they think that I'm slow or lazy? It's a codependency is an external. It's the need for an external source of validation and over identification with a peer taking role, and it's rampant in nursing. And one study suggested that it was that eighty percent of practicing nurses have some degree of codependency. Wow. That's yeah, pretty was, high. That's a, that's pretty, that is really high. Yeah. Do you, do you know why that is? Uh, well, so in some of the articles, they say that, you know, a lot of people go into nursing because they're trying to heal themselves after a traumatic childhood. Hmm. There are a lot of nurses who are children of alcoholics or, or, or children that come from psychologically pathological families where, um, you know, not the best parenting techniques were used or whatever. And th- there was that speculation. But there's others that say that, you know, it's a female-dominated profession and we tend to take more subservient roles. We t- tend to not necessarily speak up for what we want or what we need. We, we become a little bit more passive as we're, we're sort of, from a, from a societal standpoint, we're sort of like conditioned to be less aggressive and more passive and, and to sort of just take a back seat and let somebody else's needs come before ours because tr- traditionally caregiving has been a female dominated profession no matter how you slice it nurses teachers you know the caring professions and so i i'm not sure i i think that probably it has more to do with the gender issue than uh, than you know children of alcoholics or children of drug addicts or abusive families um although that certainly does play into it um there's some really fascinating articles about out there about it. And if you look around, you know, I did this after I started studying it, I kind of look around and I can point it out. I, I recognize it in my coworkers and I just want to hug them and say, you are inherently valuable. You, your value does not come from whether somebody thinks you're a good stick or if somebody believes that you're the fastest on the unit or that you're the smartest nurse, you are inherently valuable and you deserve a break. You deserve to sit down so that your feet don't hurt or to eat a little or to go to the bathroom. Those are things that we need for our survival. That's not even a privilege. Right. I'm glad you said that because I mean, like, it's amazing how, um, you know, from what you're talking about, about how nurses are, are so stressed and you know, all the things that they have to do and they can't go to the bathroom and they're worried about if, um, if they go, the, go and take their break, what are other nurses thinking about them? Well, I mean, that is really, um, you know, that's really sad to, to think that nurses have to go through that kind of um, stress. It's very prevalent. I even see it in these nursing forums. Like I'm a, I'm a member of several of the nursing groups on Facebook. And I, I watch, especially the ER nurses groups, where we tend to be a little bit grittier, a little darker with our humor and vent, you know, and I'm glad they have a place to vent. But as I'm listening to some of the things that people say, it's their codependency just resonates through some of these statements that are made. And I just want to reach out to them and say, look, I, I know that you're bitter because so-and-so demanded a break, but guess what? You deserve a break too. You just de- break too. You're not any better of a nurse because you're not taking a break. You're a nurse that, that's going to pee on herself. <laughs> I've been there. I'll say that I'm relating. I'm not judging. I'm relating because I've right. been that nurse and I don't want to be that nurse. I don't want to be that person. I, I want better mental health than that. And I, I, I'm, I feel like I've been able over the last year, two years, to really discover my own inherent value and to recognize that it's okay to ask for what I need or to state, you know, what I believe that I need to state. Right. And so, so one of the, the um, ways of, of combating burnout was to, um, to move to Mexico and um, sail away in a boat. 
Well, it also, it gave me time to research what I wanted to research. Whereas when I was working at ER in particular, I was just so spent when I came home from work that I just, I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to veg out and watch bad TV and, and eat bonbons. And I did, I, I, I didn't have that intellectual curiosity that is usually something that's one of my characteristics. Like I'm very curious about everything. I'm just one of these busy monkeys and I want to know about everything. And I'm always asking questions and that I was robbed of that. I robbed myself of that because I allowed myself to fall into this pit of despair. And moving to Mexico, you know, it's lovely, you know, the sun shining and there's warm water and the beach and margaritas and all the wonderful things we associate with a tropical climate. But after a while, you know, I mean, there's only, only so many margaritas you can drink and, you know, so much sun you can get. There's other, you know, not working was sort of, as I looked around myself one day, I was like, okay, well, this was, this has been lovely. It's been a few months. I've enjoyed this, right. but there, I need more in my life. I need more intellectual stimulation. I need to read more. Um, now I have time to read about stuff and try to figure out what the heck happened to me so right. I can really understand it from a scientific standpoint. And I know you have a passion for um, helping new grads. You yeah. know, so the new grads are struggling in the workplace. Like, so tell me more about how you help new grads um, you know, work um, in the ER or whatever floor they want to work in nursing. Oh my God, I love my new grads. <laughs> I can't even tell you. Like, I love these kids. Um, so Dave and I weren't able to conceive. And so we ended up not having a family of our own. But I'll tell you what, my new grads are my kids. And I am super passionate about helping them achieve success in whatever they want to do. And uh, I ran two cycles of new grads. So about, I think, 15 successful new grads through our ER, through my two uh, residency programs. And one of the things that I did was we'd have a day of didactic instruction once during the week. It was a 10-hour day, very long. And I would always incorporate professional um, issues into that. And so conflict resolution was a big thing, it, you know, how to accept, uh, uh criticism and how, how to accept feedback and how to give and give feedback or state your position and be able to interact with your peers in a way that's professional and assertive and not aggressive. Right. Not everybody passed my new grad program. I had, I think, four or five that were not successful, but I was able to, it just wasn't a good fit. And one of the things I do talk about in, when I do consulting is finding good fits, do targeted hiring and find people who are going to be a good fit for the department because if they're not, they will never be successful and they'll always feel like they're failing. And that's the worst thing ever because we don't go into nursing to, to fail. We go in because we want to help people. We want to feel good about what we're doing. And to have somebody come into a department, especially a new grad, and, be, and, and fail at it is just a tragedy. And so one approach that I took with the new grads is for, for the, the low performers, the ones that weren't with the, with the center of mass, the, with the pack, um, I did one-to-one mentoring with them and kind of tried to get a feel for what their essence was. And like one of them, I got a job in, this, in psychiatry. She, he was a fantastic psych nurse. He was meant for that. But a psych nurse isn't necessarily a great ER nurse because they tend to want to listen a little bit more. <laughs> and <laughs> nobody got time for that in the ER. Unfortunately, it's not right. designed for that. But he was very successful on the psych unit, on the behavioral health unit. Right. And then there was clearly 
way too way too interested in details. And ER nurses, we we we're kind of fast and rough and sloppy a little. <laughs> you know, I mean, we don't pretend to be interested in labeling IVs and labeling tubing and what that that's just not going to happen. So this person was very interested in all of that. I was like she might be a good ICU nurse. And her preceptor was wonderful. He's the one that came to me initially. He's like, you know what? She's an ICU nurse. And so I got her a job in the ICU. So she didn't fail. She went to an environment where she was able to thrive and get down the skills that she needed. And eventually she came back to the ER and was very successful. And I'm very proud of her. Oh, very good. Very good. I, I, I like that. I like the fact that you, um, you know, helping you grads find a place, find their fit into, you know, wherever, you know, um, wherever they're meant to be. And because, you know, I I really think that um, if you work in a a job, an area that you're meant to be there, you're going to be happier. You're going to want to go to work. And so it's it's good to, you know, you can find that fit. But Alison, I have this one last question for you. So go back to your younger Alison, who felt overwhelmed on the job. What words of wisdom would you give yourself? To us so that she can feel confident in her job. Ah, uh, I would tell her that she doesn't have to do it all. She could, I would tell her that she doesn't have to do it all because in doing it all, your self-worth gets tied up in what you can do and what you can produce and what you can accomplish. And I, I would encourage that Allison to understand that she has inherent self-worth. We all do. We're all made of stardust. We're all intended to be on this earth. We all have a purpose and it's our value is not inherently tied to what we can produce and what we can accomplish. And uh, having a good understanding of that, a good understanding of your own self-worth, inherent self-worth is incredibly powerful. And it took me almost 50 years to figure that out. back at age 22 that would be nice (laughs) but you figure it out so that's that's important so allison so um so where can we find you on social media my twitter handle is uh, expedition at expedition edrn Uh, same thing with my uh instagram i'm not as good with instagram and twitter as i'd like to be i'm mostly on facebook and that is expedition edrn as well Okay, perfect. So thank you so much, Allison, for sharing your journey with us, going from, from burnout to blessed. And um, so I thank you. And um, so I will have all of Allison's information in the show notes on esmelawrence.com. Allison, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And, um, and so you're my new friend. And thank you. And we'll keep in touch. Thank you, Allison. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Take care. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Sprinting to Success with your host, Esme Lawrence. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. For more information about Esme and to hear other episodes of the show, go to EsmeLawrence.com. That's E-S-M-I-E-L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E.com. The information in this podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional or medical treatment or advice. Always seek advice from your healthcare provider.